Around about this time uh, to the exact day and the exact Sunday at the end of January 1972, uh, the events of Bloody Sunday occurred. I say around this time because uh, the, the, the various records are a little hazy, but probably somewhere around about four o'clock, um, a, a group of British paratroopers uh, came from behind the uh, barricades and uh, then, according to their own official account, went into the crowd to make arrests. But according to both the population of Derry and indeed many other eyewitnesses, particularly uh, reporters, but indeed uh, a few um, people who were visiting the city and so forth, um, the troops came from behind the barricades and very quickly took up firing positions and then opened fire on the crowd. Um, what we do know is that in around about a 10 to 15 minute period, somewhere between about 10 past four and uh, maybe 20 past four, uh, 25 past four or so, uh, 13 people were shot dead. Uh, another man was uh, very seriously wounded and was to die a few months later. And then any uh, varying estimates of the injured, but uh, between 13 and 18 people were seriously injured. And of course, large numbers of people who were both present or who were related or in other ways involved uh, suffered those, uh, the, the impact of these events. The phrase that uh, Stan took from my article, Sheer Unadulterated Murder, is not the, um, is not the words of uh, some militant Republican or some raving leftist. It's actually the words of the Derry uh, City Coroner, Hugh, Major Hugo O'Neill, who was a uh, former uh, officer in the British Army. But he argued in an inquest into the deaths that, uh, that they had been murdered and that the British Army had essentially run amok and that, uh, that they had fired into innocent people. Why I give the, uh, the very rough account of what happened uh, is that for a very long time, the actual events of the day have been contested. And indeed, uh, if you've read any of the coverage you'll be very well aware that the initial uh, reports, for example, the, the media uh, gave the story uh, out from around about six o'clock that uh, a, a number of IRA gunmen and bombers had been killed in a gun battle with, uh, with British troops. And so the, the exact nature of what happened was, was immediately uh, covered up a, a particular spin was put on it that this was um, uh, an IRA attack and that the, the troops, insofar as they uh, opened fire, were responding to, uh, to attacks upon them. In other words, it was part of a narrative in uh, the Northern Ireland at that time that the uh, British Army that was there as peacekeepers and that uh, they were coming under increasingly aggressive attacks and that when they did so, they followed their own uh, rules of engagement, the so-called yellow card, which uh, gave various details of, of how they should respond. 
and responded essentially in self-defense. Now, the accounts that we have from the participants on the march and a number of other people who were, were in a sense, bystanders, one of them, most interestingly, uh, an Englishman who lived in the Bogside area, who was a former British soldier, and it's his account, which I think is most striking, because he talks of the paratroopers coming from behind the barricades, turning the corner and immediately taking up firing positions. And uh, as, as someone who'd served in the British Armed Forces, I think he'd be very well aware of what a firing position is. I think he was also quite well aware in his account that the uh, paratroopers in moving into the space did not expect or were not responding to um, serious uh, hostile responses in the form of arms or bombs. They were, for example, in an open space, uh, you know, taking firing positions in the way that somebody might take a firing position if they were out shooting animals or rabbits or whatever. So the, the, uh, the events of Bloody Sunday uh, very quickly turned into a major political issue. And indeed, in, in many ways, it could be said that Bloody Sunday was one of the turning points of what uh, later became known as the Troubles. Um, a turning point because it, I think, in certainly in the, the immediate years that followed, so certainly up to 72, 73, um, the IRA's campaign was, was given a tremendous fillip. Um, recruits flooded into the IRA. Um, uh, on, the, on that night, and indeed on the successive days in Derry, um, young people were joining up in queues. They were in, a, you know, in the famous phrase, queuing around the block. And indeed, further afield, support for the IRA increased but also support against the repressive policies of the British state grew. The reaction throughout Ireland uh, was very dramatic um, through, uh, through protests, spontaneous strikes and demonstrations occurred, schools closed. Indeed, um, it was probably the biggest uh, mobilization of popular opinion I think really since the, the 1920s. But even further afield in the United States, there were boycotts of British goods, British shipping was boycotted, and there were protests in you know, most uh, European cities. Indeed, there were protests in Britain as well. So the events of Bloody Sunday were, I think, uh, an imp important turning point. And for many people, it was a, made a very clear sort of distinction, a very clear uh, answer, very clear illustration of, of British policy. And um, so the, the politicization and the political debate of these events was, was really there from the beginning. In the, um, in the immediate hours after the, um, uh, after the, uh, the, the paratroopers attack, the British Army and the British government's media operation went into uh, high gear. And so stories went out that the, um, that the army had come under attack, that they'd shot a number of uh, gunmen and terrorists. And then further stories came that they'd recovered weapons, 
that that they'd uh, found uh, traces of explosives and so forth on the bodies of of the people who were shot dead. And so the 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 full uh, the full sort of paraphernalia of state propaganda was directed uh, at this uh, this particular incident. In the days that followed, this then turned into a full-blown media campaign. And as we might expect, um, the, um, the right-wing papers in Britain and indeed elsewhere uh, argued that this had been, um, uh, you know, an IRA attack. It had been an attempt and an attack on the British forces. And um, so the British forces had naturally responded. It also turned on the nature of the march and indeed what the, what the protest march was about. I think, um, I think it's important to remind ourselves that the march was a civil rights march and the march itself uh, was going to be addressed not only by uh, Bernadette Devlin, but also by Fenner Brockway, who was um, a British Labour politician, uh, ILP member, a very sort of eminent progressive figure. And the march was in protest at the introduction of internment without trial, and indeed much of the repressive legislation that had been introduced or the, the repressive policies that were being developed in the six counties. Now, the march was scheduled to come down from the, uh, the Bogside area and the Craggan further up the hill and to go into the into the city of Derry and to go around the bottom of the walls and down to the Guild Hall, which is quite an open square. Now the march was banned. Uh, again, the, the Stormont government had extensive powers to ban marches of that sort. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> pardon me, so it's, it was likely that it was going to be contested. And so the organizers of the march uh, agreed that they would march out of the Bogside, but would probably end their march in the area around Free Derry Corner. In other words, they would be well away from the Guildhall and indeed largely away from the barricades, which were usually set up um, uh, around William Street, um, uh, which again leads into the Guildhall. Uh, it's an area I know reasonably well, so I'm sorry if I start assuming you do as well. But I want you to think that the, the Free Derry was probably a good quarter of a mile away from the barricade. So the idea was to have the rally and then disperse the rally. Um, so the debate then was going to be, I suppose, uh, what would be the likely outcome of the march? Uh, how, would, um, how would the march go? And uh, would it lead to any sort of disorder? Derry had been a, a, a center of the civil rights movement and increasingly in the, the, from late 1969 onwards, very militant resistance to both the Stormont regime and uh, increasingly a, a base for the um, uh, emerging provisional IRA. The movement that developed in Derry was uh, from that period essentially a mass movement of the, the nationalist working class population. 
I'm going to use that term because the in the language of the time it was often Catholic and Protestant and although those are conve very convenient sort of shorthand labels I think that that tends to sectarianize what in many ways was a was a, a political conflict uh, around democratic rights but also around the idea of national independence national liberation so Derry was a very important center for that in some ways the civil rights movement which developed from the late uh, from the middle 60s had one of its bases in Derry um, in other parts of uh, other parts of the north of Ireland had contributed to um, to the civil rights movement, obviously. But um, in terms of the militant uh, actions, Derry was often at the forefront, and this was because Derry had all of the um, all of the factors, all of the symbolic factors, all of the illustrations of the. Um, uh, inequalities, all of the discrimination uh, of the old Stormont regime. So Derry was famous uh, for its gerrymandered electoral boundaries, which meant that a, a city with a majority nationalist population returned a majority of unionist councillors and elected representatives. It was also an example of all the social problems, unemployment, very bad housing, uh, accounts uh, both at the time, but since um, uh, Eamon McCann wrote an account, War in an Irish Town, which talks about these, um, the, these sort of underlying issues. So Derry was almost a prime case of the nature of the Northern Irish state. And it was also a center of resistance. Um, one of the first major civil rights marches took place in October, 1968. And from then on, Derry becomes this center of resistance, culminating in the first phase in the so-called Battle of the Bogside in August 1969, in which um, uh, clashes around a, a loyalist uh, loyal order march, the Apprentice Boys March, led to an attempt by the IUC to enter the Bogside <clears throat> and for the Bogsiders to repel that attack and to keep that resistance up for a couple of days um, with the resistance uh, then spreading to other parts of the north of Ireland, particularly to Belfast, leading very quickly to the forces of the state being uh, overwhelmed. And of course, then the intervention of British troops to quote, act in support of the civil power. So Derry, in many ways, the sort of cockpit of the troubles. And indeed, um, there have been a number of um, academic analyses which talk about the importance of Derry. So Derry in, um, in, uh, in this period is, uh, and uh, you know, has a symbolic value for both uh, the nationalist population and also the unionist population. Derry is the uh, the site of the siege of Derry. Uh, it's the it's a, it was a sort of symbol of the uh, the Protestant ascendancy, and so the idea that it was their city or our city was quite deeply rooted in politics. Indeed, even going into certain spaces of the city, for example, going into the Diamond, which is effectively inside the walled part of the city, 
all going down into the guild hall all had this um all had this i suppose political power behind it the other issue of course was that Derry was at the center of a very effective uh, campaign by the IRA and uh, that that campaign which had began to develop uh, in 1970 uh, began then to gather momentum from the spring of 1971 uh, the the attack took the, the the campaign took the took the form of um, uh, ambushes and uh, attacks on soldiers but also the bombing of commercial and business targets and Derry again was one of the centers uh, for this activity in fact the center of Derry was 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 quite devastated by the IRA's commercial campaign and then when combined with uh, ambushes and attacks um, made uh, Derry a very difficult area uh, indeed, um, the Savile Report um, describes Derry in 1972 in the following ways. It says, the situation in Londonderry in January 1972 was serious. By this stage, the nationalist community had largely turned against the soldiers, many believing that the army, as well as the Royal uh, Ulster Constabulary, were agents of an oppressive regime. A large part of the nationalist area of the city was a no-go area, which was dominated by the IRA, was where ordinary policing could not be conducted, and where even the army ventured only by using large numbers of soldiers. Now, there's an important point about uh, that use of the phrase no-go area. In parts of Northern Ireland, particularly in, um, in, in parts of Belfast and in Derry, there were areas in which the state uh, had in effect ceded control. These areas had emerged in the summer of 1969. They were areas which had been barricaded and shut off uh, from um, the intrusions of the state, particularly the IUC. And even with the presence of British soldiers had remained effectively outside of the direct control of the state. Um, these no-go areas were, of course, symbols of uh, a challenge to the authority of the state. And as such, I think they presented uh, a serious challenge to both military planners and, uh, and, and, and officers and so forth and, uh, and governments. And I think what we're starting to look at or what we, we perhaps need to understand is the nature of the campaign that was now being directed against the state wasn't just an armed campaign by a, a, a paramilitary organization, that the provisional IRA does increasingly represent a mass insurrectionary movement. Um, in this period, the IRA is able to organize relatively freely in these areas, and indeed on some parts of the countryside as well. So for example, from photographic evidence, we can see uh, IRA checkpoints so that people coming into and out of the area are checked by uh, members of the IRA. We can see um, uh, this sort of sense that these areas were no longer under state control. So this presents a challenge to the state, but so does the nature of the movement. It isn't just uh, a small 
terroristic band, it is much more, I think, uh, the nationalist community, a much wider form of mobilization. Many contemporaries point to this, um, this sort of sense. Um, one one uh, person that I interviewed, admittedly about 25 years after the events we're describing, but he says, um, he said that a pool of energy had been re released and that the institutions and the structures of the state seemed to have been thrown off. And then we realized that they, the state, weren't all powerful. We had no-go areas and we had an armed organization. And all of this resulted in a discussion, what would replace it? So this, these are some of, the, some of the circumstances, I think, surrounding Bloody Sunday. And these, uh, we have the, uh, the mass resistance campaign. We then have as well, and I think this, this sort of context is important to note, we have uh, a state counterinsurgency strategy which is very much determined to crush this movement. Now to perhaps help explain this I need to talk a little bit about maybe the constitutional and the political relationship between Stormont, the so-called devolved government in Stormont and the British state. I referred earlier to the civil rights movement emerging in the 1960s as a um, uh, essentially a, a movement to gain civil rights. Also some forms of social and economic equality and above all the an end to discriminatory practices in housing and employment, both public and private sector. Now this civil rights movement uh, took direct inspiration from uh, a number of similar movements that were occurring internationally. Uh, the civil rights marches in Northern Ireland borrowed much from the American movement, even the song We Shall Overcome. And in terms of their strategies, this was a movement that didn't focus uh, on national liberation, reunification, it indeed uh, famously used the slogan, British rights for British citizens. And uh, I have uh, in my possession some old people's democracy leaflets that were issued for an election in February, 1969, when they actually make the statement, if we're part of the United Kingdom, we should have the same rights as other people in the United Kingdom. So this civil rights movement differed from other movements in the nationalist population in the six counties really since its existence in the period 1920 to 25. It was a movement that, that focused on both uh, economic and social demands, but fairly basic democratic demands as well. It developed as well, I think, from a number of sort of quite important social changes amongst the population in the six counties, which I I don't really have time to go into, but I think it's quite important that students, particularly Catholic students, many of whom were the first generations in their family to stay on at school beyond uh, 14 or 15, school leaving age was, was being raised in this period, and of course some of them had access to university education, 
many of the leaders of the civil rights movement, uh, both the more militant wing, but indeed its more moderate social democratic wing, would have come from this, uh, th this grouping. The other thing as well, I think, is that uh, in the late 60s, the sense of possibility and the sense that struggles could win, I think was very strong internationally. The anti-Vietnam War movement, again, had an impact on people, the student protest movements uh, in, uh, in European capitals also. Um, when, uh, when there were civil rights marches or when there were student protests in Northern Ireland in this period, uh, the popular press often linked what was happening in Paris and Berlin and Berkeley with Belfast. Uh, and this idea that this was part of a, a wider international movement, I think is quite significant. So how did the British state respond to the demands for civil rights? Well, the policies of British governments historically for, um, for much of the 20th century was to allow Stormont to continue governing as it wished. And um, on occasions when British MPs raised uh, events in the north of Ireland, these were ruled out by the speaker as beyond the competence or a convention had been established that, that the House of Commons didn't discuss these things. But by the late 60s, this was no longer really tenable. And indeed, the Wilson government, uh, when faced with the growing civil rights movement, attempted to pressurize the unionist government to making concessions. Again, we can see this from the cabinet minutes and from the records of the discussions. But Wilson's government realized that there would have to be some form of modification at the very least, and was, was putting tremendous pressure on uh, O'Neill's government, on the unionist government in uh, Stormont to, um, to carry out those reforms. Now, again, for a number of reasons in terms of the internal dynamics of the Unionist Party, the nature of the Unionist population, um, that was not possible, or indeed it would have, would, have, would have meant, in effect, conflict between the state and sections of Unionism. Um, Wilson, for example, when, when troops were sent in, in the summer of 69 to um, stabilize the situation, and many people said, well, what should happen now is that Britain should introduce direct rule and carry out these, these reforms. Wilson rejected that on the grounds that you, the Unionists would, would oppose it, and indeed there might even be a risk of um, a sort of Unionist uprising. Um, he reminded people that the Unionists dominated the RUC, they had the B specials, and Northern Ireland had some of the highest gun ownership in the United Kingdom. In other words, the possibilities of, uh, again, a sort of uh, Ulster Unionist militancy um, you know, being directed against the state. So w Wilson's government um, was, was quite, was quite cautious in its dealings um, and indeed attempted to stabilize the situation. Now, this is where I think the dynamics that are going to, uh, are going to give rise both to the events in Derry 
but more importantly, their aftermath uh, are significant. In many ways, we can point to the origins of Bloody Sunday in British state counterinsurgency strategy. Now, conventionally, it's often argued that when the Tories were returned to power in 1970, in June 1970, that because of their historic links with unionism, because of um, their, their very close parliamentary relationship, uh, there was still um, an Ulster Unionist MP. Uh, I think it was uh, Chichester Clark's uh, cousin, who was um, a, a, a junior minister in the Department of Employment in, in the early 70s. So uh, you, you also have, I suppose, the traditional conservative defense of the union, defense of law and order, opposition to militant nationalism, opposition to militant movements. And so conventionally, it would be you know, quite easy to see this. Uh, within days of the uh, Tories coming to power, there were two fairly big uh, security operations which seemed to indicate that the state and the army was going to go in hard. The, um, the uh, Falls Road curfew in July 1970 and the so-called um, Battle of St Matthews in late June. Now, these were, these were operations which defined the situation in the north of Ireland as one of co combating insurgency. So, the, the, the Falls Road curfew involved the curfew of uh, a district of the city and then extensive house searches for arms, um, you know, smashing up the furniture, pulling up the floorboards, and of course, uh, some resistance by the population um, between eight and, uh, the figures are still contested, but I think something like eight people died in the operation. One of them was, a, I think, a French uh, photographer. Um, so the army was framing the movement uh, that, that they essentially were confronted with was as insurgency. And the focus on removing the barricades, ending the no-go areas, which again, the, the cabinet minutes show a tremendous emphasis on this, was not only resulting from unionist pressure, but it was also resulting, I think, from the the desire of the army to confront uh, a challenge. And the challenge still in 1970 from militant republicanism was fairly weak. Um, partly, partly, to, um, partly as a reflection of their own organization and military weakness, but also even of their political support Again, my, my own researches and researches of, of other people I know uh, with former members of the uh, IRA in this period all point to a very cautious uh, approach. So the idea that immediately the British Army went to Ireland, there was a, an insurgency against them isn't, isn't accurate. That takes time to develop. And indeed, what facilitates much of the emergence of that militant movement is actually the, the actions of the state itself. So in this crucial period between 70 and 72, particularly culminating in Bloody Sunday, there are a series of parallel movements. There's an official civil rights movement, which even 
even this fairly mild innocuous body is regarded as a, um, a revolutionary challenge by the Stormont government. And then there is the more militant Republican movement, which is small but growing and is increasingly turning to armed struggle as it will do um, really effectively from the spring of 71. There's some, some attacks in 70, but it, it doesn't really start to, to pick up. Now the response of, of the British state was really very repressive. And this again reaches a, 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 a something of a pitch in the summer of 1971 with the introduction of internment without trial. Now the ability to intern, um, to imprison people and to hold them without trial had always existed in Northern Ireland. And indeed, as a, as a piece of emergency legislation, it was without equal, I, I think, in the world. Um, it, you know, it was, uh, it was a fairly draconian piece of legislation which allowed the government simply to arrest people and hold them. And the list of crimes or the list of uh, evidence that could be used against you ranged uh, from possession of newspapers and books through to songs and flags. Uh, much less you know, unauthorized possession of weapons and, and so forth. So when, when, when internment was introduced, it was very clearly uh, an attempt to, to nip this insurrection in the bud. But of course, as is, um, as is the way of these things, um, not only did it not nip the insurrection in the bud, it actually gave fuel to it. On internment night, in August 1971, there was widespread rioting, there was widespread armed resistance, and indeed in some senses the, the, the no-go areas were reinforced. Indeed, the barricades went up in some areas and it, in a sense, in, increased the resistance. So internment was a, a very important question because it went to the heart both of the nature of the regime but also of the British state's response to it. Alongside uh, internment, we have uh, a full-blown counterinsurgency strategy. And that strategy, uh, I think, is important to look at because I think it really underpins much of our understanding about what went on on Bloody Sunday itself. Northern Ireland's constitutional position um, was a part of the United Kingdom. So uh, to misquote a famous phrase, it was as British as Finchley, except in many ways it wasn't, and indeed in quite fundamental ways it wasn't. But for the purposes of the state, the British army was acting in support of the civil authority. So this gave it really uh, not extra military powers. It was not, for example, under martial law, it was running under the basis of common law. And so um, the, uh, the army had, a, had, in a sense, to work within rules of engagement and was, was, in theory, answerable. But in practice, of course, this wasn't true. And it began to develop a, a full-blown counterinsurgency campaign based upon the assumption a significant part of the population, particularly in the nationalist areas, were in a sense enemies of the state who had to be combated. 
And this drew upon uh, a methodology drawn from colonial wars. And what, why I emphasize this contradictory position between a counterinsurgency strategy and uh, the, the sort of domestic nature was, of course, that the, the type of emergency laws that you could introduce in Aden or Kenya or Malaya or Cyprus, it was quite difficult to do in Britain. But perhaps more importantly, it was also because um, you had a part of the United Kingdom that was uh, engaged in widespread resistance to the state. This was not somewhere thousands of miles away from home. It's somewhere close to the center of the state. It, was, it had many cultural similarities. Above all, it was open to the access of the media. One of the things which I think is, is often overlooked um, is that, the, is that those, there were wide sections of the British media who in the, in the late 60s and 70s bought the government line and indeed you know, propagated that line. But there are also many other sections of the media, some often in quite surprising newspapers, who carried out in investigative journalism, which was quite revelatory, both about the, the about life in the north of Ireland, but indeed about the conduct uh, of, of the army and so on. So I think this uh, these are all important factors which influence the nature of the strategy. But of course, if you see this insurgency and you see this movement as a threat to your state, you're going to deal with it. And sections of the army, we know from both their records, both from contemporary news reports, but also from uh, archive material, clearly saw this as a, a movement that had to be crushed. Um, Brigadier Frank Kitson, who became something of a notorious figure in this period, particularly in his work on low intensity warfare, developed a whole series of strategies from from areas such as Kenya and Aden, and these were applied in Northern Ireland. Um, these ranged from um, simply the use of arrests, uh, the use of uh, banning orders, the use of repression against demonstrations, but also they, they went into, the, into areas of black propaganda. And of course, um, often, what nowadays are called false flag operations, but the operation of so-called pseudo gangs, either running groups of loyalists to carry out assassinations, or indeed using uh, undercover British units to um, act as provocateurs, or in some senses to uh, you know, weaken the enemy. Again, plenty of examples of collusion between the army and um, some sections of loyalism, but perhaps more importantly, a, a clear desire amongst the army to, to deal with the insurgency. They were under though some uh, political constraint, both from London, but that was then counterbalanced by the um, Ulster Unionist government and its political imperatives for a hard crackdown and to deal with these problems. So, the situation then we have in early 1972 is of a, a, a rising uh, insurgency. 
the the government um, the, the government of Northern Ireland and indeed the British state feel that um, that the situation is sliding out of control, and then something must be done. Now, before we before we turn itself to Bloody Sunday and some of the questions surrounding it, I want to add another sort of set of contextual factors, which I think explain up to a point uh, what the British state is doing. If, um, if we see the British state uh, as it was in many parts of the world as a colonial regime, imperialist regime, then we, we can explain, I think, policy in Northern Ireland sort of fairly easily. But I think that there are particular conjunctural factors uh, in the late 60s and 70s, and I, I agree, I think these continue really later than that, which is about what the British state in, state's interest is in Northern Ireland. Now, I, I don't want to you know, go into a longer sort of historical discussion on this, but it's very clear that by this period, British state interests are much less to do with um, colonial exploitation or indeed economic benefits that may well have been the case of the, at the time of partition. It's also, I think, uh, although the, um, the links between the Conservatives and the Ulster Unionists are historically close, uh, I'm not entirely sure that they are as close as they were, say, in the years before 1914. Now, I think, I think we have to locate British state strategy in the political, and in particular, in the nature of the challenge to the state that's posed by places like, like um, the, the bog side. It's the fact that, that a part of the state is um, out of the control of the state. It's, it's the fact that there is a mass movement in opposition to the state and that indeed the state is unable to secure its own borders and its own territory. Remember that the 1970s in Britain are a very turbulent period for the British ruling class. One of the things that is often useful to remind ourselves is when we're looking at events in Ireland is simply to look either if we're looking through the cabinet minutes or we're looking at a newspaper, look at what else is happening. Look at the uh, working class movement that's developing against the Industrial Relations Act. Look at the trade union militancy. Look also at the, um, the sort of sense of urban unrest. Uh, and above all, the feelings in the ruling class that they were facing a really quite fundamental challenge. Um, and that, that challenge comes not just from, from the uh, nationalist population of the six counties, but it also comes from within. It comes from militant trade unions. It comes from the, en the enemy within, as, 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 as was going to be said in the 1980s. So I think that political interest of dealing with this movement is in a sense quite, you know, quite core to, to understanding what's happened or what happened. So we have a, a ruling class that's faced with a challenge. How does it deal with that challenge? Well, initially the Conservative government's policy is, is one of repression that 
is seemingly not to work. And it's here where I think we start to come to the context of, uh, of Derry itself. The Widgery report and the Savile report share many things in common. Uh, the Savile report, which, which finally appeared in 2010, although it had finished taking evidence in 2005, had been set up by Blair's government in the late uh, 90s, very much as part of the peace process to, um, to find, um, quote, the truth about Bloody Sunday, that this would be all part of the reconciliation process, part of the peace process, the healing, uh, you know, finding justice, uh, overcoming the legacy of the past and so forth. Now, what both Savile and Widgery found with very similar, um, you know, a very similar set of parameters was actually run counter to much of what was the common sense of the nationalist population of Ireland. And indeed, uh, when I went to a seminar with one of the historical advisors to the uh, Savile um, Commission, he said he was genuinely surprised that the, 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 the people in Derry had accepted the Savile findings because he said, in, in essence, they didn't really contradict Widgery. And the finding was, it, that's common to both of them, was that there was no premeditated or planned assault on the bog side. Uh, Savile says that, uh, that, that many people believed that the paratroopers had been brought to Derry um, to, to carry out a punitive mission into the bog side uh, to make arrests and in, in other words to sort of hit hard and that this was um, this was a way of, um, of, of crushing the movement in, in a sense um, cracking down hard on the center of resistance. Now the important points in both Widgery uh, and Savile was premeditation and they both argued that there was no plan on the day to carry out a massacre so that what we don't have here, they, they argued, was a conscious state strategy, that they didn't, um, they didn't um, plan to kill X number of people. It was simply a, a form of accident, or in the case of Widgery, that it was a justified response to attacks that were made upon them. Um, I think that this issue of uh, causation and this issue of strategy is really quite essential because both the official reports and indeed the apology that David Cameron gave in, uh, in 2010, in the much of the coverage that we've seen uh, in the newspapers and on the television in the last few days, has turned around this sort of tragedy and has taken the words that, um, that Savile uh, uttered and which David Cameron repeated that the, uh, that the deaths on Bloody Sunday were unjustified and unjustifiable. And that of course turns the uh, responsibility onto the, the people who fired the shots. Now, this, I suppose, is very reminiscent 
of the wider debates that we have uh, about the nature of the state and indeed the, pub, the, 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 the behavior of the police and the armed forces. Um, I mean, it, it, it's obviously a, a particular issue in the United States with, with Black Lives Matter, but also here too, where um, the behavior of individual policemen uh, is ascribed to sort of bad apples that you know that you will always get a few bad apples in a barrel but essentially the barrel is sound the crop is sound um, and this sort of bad apple theory is often applied to uh, to armed forces and to to the police you know how many times when uh, when a, a suspect died in custody would we hear this theory and so this sort of theory uh, which exonerates the state as an entity exonerates its strategy um, that is brought out to justify or to explain what happened so the narrative we now have um, which um, you know sort of picks up on this theory from Savile is that a group of um, of paratroopers their fire their fire discipline their military command structure broke down and rather like um, Hugh O'Neill, that, that they ran amok. Now, you know, that could be an explanation. That certainly could be an explanation. Any group of people with guns in their hands can behave in all sorts of different ways. But remember the, um, remember the descriptions that I gave uh, of uh, some eyewitnesses which were that the, the soldiers moved towards the crowd and took up firing positions. Now I'm not, I've never served in an army, but I'm fairly sure from what I've seen of soldiers on patrol in, in Ireland, when they think they're gonna come under attack, they're looking around, they're not uh, relaxing. They are, um, you know, taking up a firing position in that way would indicate uh, you know, a, a degree of confidence about what they were facing and the fact that they were in a superior position. So if we, if we take that as one, one explanation, what other possible explanations are there? Well, there's the rogue officer argument, in particular, Derek Wilford, the commander of uh, uh, number one para, um, was alleged to have sort of broken orders and um, simply sent his men in and uh, let them run amok. And he, in the years that has followed, has not only been unrepentant, but also feels that he has become the scapegoat uh, for this. I think though there's a, there's a more interesting question, and it's, it's really, in a sense, one that we, we uh, uh, with the uh, available evidence that we have, is difficult to, um, it's difficult to prove, but it certainly is suggested by certain evidence. And this was uh, an operation to deal with uh, what the British Army used to, as a slang term, the Derry Young Hooligans. And the Derry Young Hooligans was a, a nickname for the more militant young people of the Bogside and the Cregan. And in the weeks leading up to uh, the march, uh, the commander of land forces in Northern Ireland, uh, Major General Robert Ford, had suggested that, that Derry had um, become ungovernable, 
and that a firm line should be taken. And he suggested that it might be the one way to deal with this was to attempt to arrest um, some of the, the rioters, but that if that couldn't be done, then uh, some selected ringleaders should be shot in the context of the riot. Now, this also reflects from what we know from the records, something of a tension between the local commander in Derry, McClellan, and also the head of the uh, RUC in Derry, uh, who's a, a Catholic and has some it links into the civil rights movement through intermediaries, that they had favored a much softer position, partly arguing that it could be contained, that the rioting could be contained with inside the bog side and that a direct confrontation would not be advisable. But Ford, and I think others, um, wanted a much harder line. Why else were the paratroopers brought from Derry, sorry, brought from Belfast to Derry? Why uh, were they given a role which was unusual for them? And above all, why was a regiment which had already gained a reputation in the words of uh, Widgery as the roughest and toughest unit, why were they used in a, in a very different role? Because of course the paratroopers have a degree of form. Um, some of the first rioting uh, and uh, really serious confrontations between British soldiers and the nationalist population actually occurred in April 1970 in which the paratroopers were involved. Of course, on internment night in, um, in August 1971, the, um, the paratroopers carried out a very similar set of attacks, the uh, Ballamurphy massacre, in which again, they shot innocent civilians. Again, the inquest that was held relatively recently found that these people were entirely innocent. They were shot again, in, uh, in circumstances in which there was um, you know, a great deal of doubt on the stories given by the soldiers. So, so we can, I think, see a pattern, which is that Derry is an area which is a thorn in the side. It's a center of resistance. It's also a mass center of resistance. And as such, I think, at the very least, it has to be controlled, if not reduced. Now, what then happens on the day, who gives the order, I think still remains unclear. Wilford um, orders the men over, but so does Ford. Ford is standing there saying, go on, Paris. And, and there, there's talk beforehand that they want some kills and so on and so forth. But it's very clear that the state's policy is one of repression. And so irrespective of who pulls the trigger on that day, I think we have to look at both at the chain of command and the general policies that are being laid down. And if we look at the political and the military strategy of the British army and indeed of the British state, then I think we can see um, really the, the, the lines of responsibility lying much further up the chain of command and into the political regime than, um, than simply some mistake on the ground. In some ways, there's a, a recognition of that, uh, if only implicitly, 
which is that the impacts of Bloody Sunday are really very dramatic. Uh, within two months of Bloody Sunday, uh, Stormont is suspended. Uh, the government of Northern Ireland, the state in Northern Ireland effectively collapses and direct rule is introduced. And increasingly, the British government now look for different options. And so the security repression um, is continued, but the realization that the state in Northern Ireland cannot simply continue as it was, it needs to be reconstituted, leads uh, to proposals from the autumn of 1972 for effectively a form of power sharing, uh, closer relationships with, um, with the South. And indeed, what in many ways are going to be the parameters of the various uh, political initiatives which are tried from the days of Sunningdale in 73 and 74 onwards. So Bloody Sunday uh, does, I think, mark a turning point. It, its place in the history of the North of Ireland is in a sense to show in stark relief the repressive policies of the state. It also gives a tremendous fillip and a boost to the uh, provisional Republican movement's insurgency. But it also ends uh, a period of mass resistance after Bloody Sunday, the civil rights movement is finished. And partly because of the conditions of, of state repression, but also because I think the movement then takes on a different form and that the, the, the possible equivocations, the possible uncertainties, the fact that people were perhaps standing to one side unsure um, of, of what position to take in, in the nationalist population, you know, much of that fades. And the, um, the demands now for uh, a campaign to reunite Ireland, a campaign to sweep away the border, uh, grow stronger. And that, of course, will then set the, um, the, the provisional movement into its campaign, which will continue in some form into the 1990s. So Bloody Sunday is, is important in that sense. But I suppose for us, the focus has to be on the, the role of the state, and above all, to move away from the, the ideas of uh, it being a simple set of accidents, above all, to move away from the ideas that, um, you know, in many ways, it was all a very unfortunate uh, set of circumstances and that um, we must now, in a sense, put that past behind us. I'm not seeking to live in the past. That's not my argument. But my argument is that, um, the, the ceremonies and the commemorations leave aside these really important questions, not just who fought, not just who pulled the trigger, in many ways, not even who gave direct orders, but the political, the social and the economic system, uh, system of government, the, 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 the army, the relationship with the state, these are the things which really determine what happened on Bloody Sunday and these are the very things, these very questions will be the things which are missing from the commemorations and the programs, the, the big unanswered questions about who 
was really responsible for the sheer unadulterated murder that took place over 50 years ago. Thank you, comrades.